As uh, Ricky mentioned, I was with you all last fall, and uh, although I minister in the MCC, the Metropolitan Community Church, which if you're unfamiliar, um, we were founded in 1968 as the first uh, Christian denomination to specifically serve the needs of the LGBT community. Uh, there aren't very many of us. There's one not far from here in Fairfax, and there's another small one in Winchester, and we're not very many of us. But during the time that I was in Boston for seven years, I became affiliated with the UUA. Uh, they have a tradition in the New England churches every month, everybody one Sunday trades pulpits. It's been going on since the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Uh, it was considered to be a very congregational thing to do. Everybody trade pulpits. Uh, so when I got there and I was pastoring the MCC in Boston, they said, the, the gay minister, come on and join us, trade pulpits with us. So I really didn't know anything about the UUA. I wasn't familiar with it. I'm a, a bit of an oddity in many ways. And <laughs> those who know me will say, yes, that's true, you are. Um, I was raised in a very conservative fundamentalist evangelical Christian tradition. Uh, I then left that tradition and I went to divinity school with the Episcopalians in Cambridge and I went from being the, you know, drinking alcohol as a sin and then I arrived with the Episcopalians and during coffee hour in church they're serving wine and I'm, how does this work? How do you do this? Um, so my affiliation with the UUA was very meaningful to me and I began working with a um, UUA-affiliated uh, ministry that is the only, in the United States, the only prison ministry that's run by a religious organization that serves LGBTQ prisoners. Every other prison ministry in the United States that serves LGBTQ prisoners exists to convert them to no longer be LGBTQ prisoners. The UUA ministry, which is called Black and Pink in, uh, in Boston, is the only one that does not do that. So I, although I'm not uh, credentialed as a minister with the UUA, um, I have an affiliation with the UUA and have spent a lot of time in a lot of churches here in Virginia and in New England. Um, since being with you in the fall, I've been several times with the church in Williamsburg and Newport News and Glen Allen. And when Ricky called and asked, would I like to come back? Or he could even finish, would you like to? Yes, whatever the, whatever, yes, I would like to. So I'm very thankful that you asked me back a second time. Ricky told me when he asked me to return that you're doing a series on trust and it was three or four months ago that he happened to contact me. And I began then thinking about the concept of trust. And as I began researching it, I was really hard-pressed to find a definition for trust that did not include one of two elements or both elements, truth and faith. No matter how far left or far right or middle the, the uh, definition, nearly universally, a definition for trust included one or both of those two elements, truth and faith. And I had to think about it for a while because it's not quite as easy to define trust as you might think. Trust is not definable in and of itself. It has to have other descriptives to describe this concept. The difficult being is that truth is not the same to everyone. Truth wasn't the same for the Protestant minister in the story I met as it was for Thich Nhat Hanh. They both operated from their truth 
but they were two separate truths. So if we're going to use truth as a description and a definition for trust, then we already have a problem here. I appreciated the story that was told to the children, although as I was listening, when I was a child and that story was told to me, it was much different, and the children are gone. In the version I was taught as a child, the wolf ate the boy, and that was supposed to be the lesson of the story, that if you lied, a wolf would show up and eat you. So you really didn't want to lie because a wolf would show up and eat you. So I appreciate that somebody had the good sense to take that violent aspect out of that story. And he climbs a tree instead of being eaten by them. All the villagers show up and they go, well, where's the boy? And the, nothing left, just a burping wolf after having eaten the boy. <laughs> My parents, as I mentioned, all of my family, as a matter of fact, attend the same church that I grew up in, in in Virginia Beach. I attended until I was 18, and for a lot of reasons, (laughs) no law stopped attending when I was 18. A very uh, special member of their Sunday school class uh, passed away a few months ago. His name was Roger. And uh, they wanted to do something special as a memorial to Roger, but they weren't quite sure what to do. So they debated back and forth. We'll raise some money and we'll decide what to do. We'll buy a piece of artwork for the church. We'll donate to charity. What exa- Well, someone in the class came up with the idea that they had read about a charity online that you could buy animals for villages in South America or Africa that would be given to the villages that the idea was supposed to be enhance the life of the village. So they raised some money and they sent it off to this charity and the charity wrote back and said with the amount of money you've contributed you can buy a goat and this goat will be given to this community in West Africa. And to call it a village was being very generous. It was a small group of families who lived in a sort of small community. So they were very thrilled. They thought, Roger, the memorial goat, is heading off to do a good thing for these villagers in West Africa. So several months went by, and they eventually got a letter from West Africa, and it said something to the effect, Dear friends in America, thank you for the gift of the goat. It was delicious. (laughs) Once again, their truth and the truth of the people at my parents' church who donated the money for the goat were two separate truths. They were truths based on two separate worldviews. The people at my parents' church did what any good group of uh, American Christians would do. They sent off a sternly worded letter to the charity that their trust had been broken. We donated this money in good faith, and they ate our goat. The Roger the Memorial Goat was eaten. Well, the truth of the West African villagers was for the past three years, there had been a drought so severe that they had to walk as far as they were physically capable of walking to find even the most rudimentary shrubs, trees, bushes, leaves to sustain their own lives, and the same for water. So although the Americans who sent the goat envision this goat being a great thing for this village, when the goat arrived at the village, the goat was a hardship. Because they didn't have the food to feed the goat, because the grass they were eating themselves to keep alive. 
And they didn't have the water for the goat because they barely had enough water for themselves. So they did the, what they felt was the responsible thing is they used the goat to sustain the life of the village. Even though it was a smaller amount of time, the idea was, well, at least it gives us hope. We've had a meal. Every part of the goat, literally every part of the goat was used. Nothing went to waste for this village. But they came at this from two separate worldviews. So although the people in America felt like their trust had been broken, the truth for the West Africans was, yes, this was a good thing because we do have a the lease on existence. And maybe in the extended time we have from the gift of your goat, another solution will present itself that will give us the grains and food and water we need to survive. I found this out uh, kind of the hard way, the idea of separate truths and what constitutes trust and doesn't trust in my own life. Uh, I've mentioned this before, um, in several places that I've spoken, I've lost more friends because of my spirituality than I have because of my sexuality. Let me say that again. I have lost more friends because of my perceived progressive, liberal, theological spirituality than I have because I'm an openly gay person. And the reason is, especially in my own community and the communities that I serve, there is the feeling that we like that theologians have taken from the Bible these seven, and there are only seven short snippets of the text that's referred to as the Bible, that have historically been used as weapons against gay people. So theologians of all backgrounds, all denominations, have worked for years to take these apart and explain them and show how these have been misused and misinterpreted as proof that they are somehow God's directive, that God hates all gay people because these seven little snippets occur within this entire volume. Well, because I serve mostly Christian congregations in the MCC, they like that those seven verses have been, that work's been done for them. They don't particularly like when you do that with other verses in the Bible. They like the rest of the Bible as it is, because that truth speaks to their worldview and their faith view, which for many people are so intertwined, they almost can't be separated. But as I try to explain, it would be disingenuous of me if I were not to do with the rest of the Bible what these great theologians did with these little seven pieces. It would be disingenuous of me not to speak the truth that I know about the history of this book that is used in Christian communities. And it would be disingenuous of me to say, as many others do, I believe every word of the Bible. I frequently tell people I take the Bible seriously, but I don't take it literally. I take it seriously as I do every sacred text, whether that text is a sacred Hindu text, a sacred Buddhist text, a sacred Muslim text, because it is a sacred text, I have the responsibility to honor it and to take it seriously. I cannot, based on truth, <laughs> take it literally. Sometimes knowing things is not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> 
because you think, what do I do with this? Because people may not want to hear your truth. Because in hearing the truth, or what you present as fact, it's upsetting to their worldview and their faith view. And for many people, their worldview and faith view has become part of their identity. So now you are asking them to question the identity you've constructed for yourself and redefine who you pronounce to the world you actually are. That's a very difficult thing to ask people to do. I also appreciated, uh, when, as I was reading some of the words of Julian Assange, who began WikiLeaks, he found this out because he had envisioned, I will present this raw data online for anyone to read, I will not offer commentary, I won't edit the data, I will just present it as it is and people can draw their own conclusions. Well, needless to say, as Julian Assange found out, although he is presenting truth and fact, he is labeled as being untrustworthy for doing that. He is considered someone who cannot be trusted because he has taken truth and fact and given it to the world. Because this truth, in fact, is upsetting to people's worldview. They read the truth, in fact, and it destroys their interpretation that they have lived and taught, especially when it concerns the United States, that we don't want to know our government operates this way. We don't want to know this stuff goes on. So we, therefore, determine that Julian Assange is someone who is untrustworthy for giving us the truth. So... When you define trust in terms of truth, I'm not sure that's quite possible for us to do. I've been thinking about when I left Boston, my therapist gave me a piece of advice because I tell people I didn't really know what freedom was until I left Virginia and went to Boston. And after having lived there, lived there for seven and a half years, coming back to Virginia, you think, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> What happened? What happened? Especially, as I was telling uh, Ricky last night, I spent a month <laughs> at the General Assembly in Richmond, and, uh, oh my God, my head, please. <laughs> and it's, uh, I spoke with delegates and senators, and what was more frightening to me wasn't some of their views, it was the fact that there were enough people who voted for them and their views to put them into... <laughs> And I had people who were delegates and senators tell me, we don't care what the Supreme Court says, we'll just ignore them. And I thought, what did you just say? How can you say that? So it was a diff different time and a different experience for me to come back. I had forgotten what it was like here. And that again speaks to the fact that I'm an oddity in Virginia. When I used the words in conjuncture, I'm an openly gay ordained Christian minister. You would be amazed at the places I have been, the schools I have spoken to, the colleges I have been at, that no one has ever heard that combination of words used together. And I often am asked, aren't you embarrassed to tell people you're gay? And I, no, I'm not, because that's my truth. That is my truth, that I am, that is part of who I am. Additionally, my faith, my denomination requires of me, it is not an option, for me to be ordained and to operate as a clergy person in the MCC, I am required to be out, open, and active in my community. So I cannot pretend to be something other than who I am. 
I was recently asked to um, guest lecture at Virginia Wesleyan College. Part of the reason was because I'm an alumni. It was where I went as an undergraduate. And I was asked to speak to several classes in the Women and Gender Studies program, which didn't exist when I was there back in the 80s. And a couple of questions that I was asked that have stayed with me. Number one, uh, one of the students asked me, what age were you when you decided to become gay? And there was nothing I could do to change her mindset that that was not an accurate question to ask. Because as she told me, no matter what my explanation was, that in my experience, I do not remember a time that I was not. I have memories of being three, four, and five years old and somehow intuitively knowing that I was somehow different. Now, I didn't have the education or the uh, experience or the vocabulary to use to describe my feelings, but I just somehow knew I was. And she could not accept this because she said, my pastor at my church told me that every gay person makes a decision to be gay. And finally, it was another student who broke the discussion because she, the girl who was telling me this was African-American. Sitting next to her was another African-American student. And she finally turned to her and said, he no more asked to be gay than you and I asked to be black. And that was the moment that she finally thought, oh, wait a minute. It somehow made an impression on her. The other thing I was, am often asked is, how can you still be a Christian and have your, the experience you've had and be an openly gay person? Because traditionally, the worst enemy of gay people has been Christianity. Uh, there's just no way around it. You can't pretend otherwise. It still is today. Most of the horrific laws that are being enacted in Africa are the result of a Christian movement to have these laws enacted. And Christian churches in the United States giving great sums of money to politicians in Africa to encourage the enacting of these laws. There is no way you can deny that Christianity has been the worst enemy of gay people. But my truth is, in my education and in my experience, I have struggled with the concept of using the term Christian. I, there are times I've tried not to use it because people assume they know what it means to be a Christian, and that somehow fits a definition that is somewhat familiar to most people in North America. But when I examine the teachings of Christ, the teachings of Christ and the teachings of traditional Christianity aren't necessarily the same thing. <laughs> I am a Christian only from the standpoint that I embrace the teachings of Christ as a guide for my life. And I find that those teachings are something that are needful for me from an ethical and moral standpoint standpoint to interact with my community. So when I read the story to you and tell the story about my parents and their purchasing a goat for, for Roger, I don't, believe it or not, I honestly don't do that from the standpoint of being critical of someone else's faith. I learned as a chaplain, um, it's, it's, you encourage people in their faith. I may not agree with it, but I will not discourage someone else from their own faith beliefs. My position is it's not what you believe or how you practice your faith. It's what you do with your faith is where I have to become involved. Because if you use those spiritual and, and theological and faith beliefs to harm other people, 
then I have to speak up. I have to criticize you. I'm not criticizing your faith. Go to your church. Believe whatever you want to believe. Teach each other whatever you want to teach. If it enlivens your life and enriches your spirit, continue to do it. But you cannot take that and harm other people with it. It's difficult for people to understand. I don't operate under the concept of a list of rules of do's and a list of rules of don't. I embrace a ethical uh, paradigm that teaches the first rule of ethics, do no harm, do no harm. And that's actually, believe it or not, what Christ taught. But people don't realize that because the, the traditional Christianity doesn't teach that. Christ was asked the question, which is the greatest of all the commandments, of all the laws? Well, his response was, love God with your whole heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, from the standpoint of ethics, that's what was embraced. Don't harm your relationship with the divine. Don't harm your relationship with other people. Treat them as you would want to be treated. So from the standpoint of ethics, that's what I try to do, embrace that teaching. So, like Julian Assange, even though I speak my truth, there are many communities who you are untrustworthy. We cannot trust you because your truth does not support our worldview and our faith view. As I was mentioning, my therapist in Boston gave me a piece of advice that I have really been thinking about, and I especially tried to think about it as I uh, prepared this message. When I was leaving Boston, the last thing he told me was, when you get back to Virginia, be genuine. Be genuine. And I thought, well, am I not already doing that? Because isn't that what trick? Well, not necessarily, because I can say words that are true, but I may not be speaking from a genuine place. And I've come to think, as I've been preparing for the concept of trust, that maybe that's a better definition of trust, as opposed to using truth and faith to define what trust is, to use genuine to define what trust is. Maybe that's a better definition. Because in being genuine, I am being more honest, more open, more in, uh, out, if you will, about who and what I am, about who and what my beliefs are, than my saying what I declare to be the truth. I uh, offered a quote, which is in your bulletin, uh, from Oscar Wilde, give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. And I embrace that quote because to me that spoke to what I just mentioned because I can speak the truth wearing a mask, but I may not be genuine in wearing a mask. I can speak the truth wearing a mask because I'm somewhat protected and people will say, okay, that's the truth and so we will deem him trustworthy. But if I take that mask off, and expose my genuineness, then I may not be trustworthy. So my genuineness to me more encompasses the concept of trust than does all the definitions I found that describe trust is this degree of truth, this degree of faith, and you put them together and that defines trust. In, in our communities, what does trust encompass? And I think the answer is the same. Trust encompasses our genuineness with each other. 
Because as genuine people, we are more drawn to each other, to more support each other. Because once again, I may not appreciate your view, I may not appreciate the way you express it, but I will respect your genuine spirit. And I will respect uh, that you are brave enough to offer your genuineness to us. So all of that said, I hope that offers a different view of trust and maybe what you were expecting. Um, maybe a wolf won't come and eat you for being genuine. <laughs> maybe like I and if I made Julian Assange, people will tell you for telling your truth. You can't be trusted because your truth doesn't support our worldview. But at least you can say, I've been genuine. 